not about winning, it's about, you know, integrity. It's about how you're living your life. Hey everybody and welcome to the show. Today we're in the middle of an eight-week series focused on building resilience. We'll be talking about why resilience is important, how to become more resilient, and talking to some of the most impressive and resilient people on earth. If you want to live a more interesting life by challenging yourself to do the impossible, you're in the right place. Let's get started. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Impossible Radio, where we talk about pushing your limits and doing the impossible. This season is all about resilience and learning to build mental toughness and grit so you can do impossible things and keep going when most people fail. Today's episode is with Paul Tharp. I met Paul through a mutual friend and got to know him out in San Diego. He's one of the nicest guys in the world, but I also learned he was the command master chief on Coronado Island in charge of training both the SEAL and SWIC teams, A teams of the U.S. Special Forces. Seriously, he's trained some of the top military operators in the entire world. He also founded the training school that preps every SEAL candidate for BUDS, the mandatory and infamous training that every candidate must pass in order to become a SEAL. There are so many abbreviations and titles that I screwed up in this, and I'm sorry for it, but uh, Paul was nice enough to play along, and hopefully you edited most of that out. But if I did screw anything up, my apologies in advance. But if anyone knows something about building mental toughness and resilience, it's Paul Tharp. He's seen thousands of SEAL candidates come and go, and only a handful of them pass. He knows what separates the finishers from the dreamers, the talkers from the doers, and today we're going to learn a little bit about him, what it takes to become a SEAL, and the difference between those that have what it takes and those that don't. Let's do this. Hey everybody, today I'm here with Paul Tharp. Paul Tharp is one of the most badass men I know. I've had the opportunity to get to know him since I moved here to San Diego. To give you a quick rundown of his many accomplishments, Paul is an ex-Navy SEAL, joined in the 80s, was in there for about 28 years, graduated BUDS in class 146, served in SEAL Team 4, was part of the DevGrew Naval Special Warfare Development Group, was deployed in Iraq and Afghanistan. He spearheaded the establishment of the Naval Special Warfare Preparatory School for the BUDS training. He's also the Command Master Chief of the Naval Special Warfare Basic Training Command in Coronado. It's the A school for the SEAL and SWIC teams. On top of that, he also finds somewhere time in there to be a multi-sport athlete competing in trail running, cycling, and surfing. Thanks for being on the show. No problem, Joel. Good to be here. Sorry I butchered the intro multiple times. There's so many uh, acronyms in there, I don't even know where to get started. Yeah, no worries. Me neither. It's, <laughs> it's not a big deal. Titles aren't really, we have to have them for structure. And, and you know, you spend a, spend a while in an organization or a community. Ultimately, you grow and you, and you gain new titles or nicknames or reputations or so be it. So, uh, or so you know, what have you. So, um, yeah, yes. it's good to be here. Good to chat with you. Yeah, so you, you've had quite a bit of time in the, in the SEALs and the Navy uh, to build up your own reputation. You joined what year in the 80s? Joined in 1984. Okay. And uh, you, you were in it 28 years. Right. I was, uh, I was in the regular Navy in the fleet on a ship for two years and then the SEAL team for 28 years. So I did a total of about 20, uh, actually 30 years in the, in the Navy total and 28 years of that as a SEAL. Okay. So I'm, I'm really intrigued about your entire background. We've talked about it personally in the past, but I, I love hearing sort of the story of what drew you to the, the, the SEALs in general. What, what, 
made you want to, to join the Navy? And then specifically the SEAL unit as, as far as, you know, that's kind of the next level. So what sort of prompted you to even consider that? Yeah, that's a good question. So, I, you know, like so many young men and women out there, I, I grew up in the Midwest. Um, I was in a high school band, played a few sports, did some swimming, and was uh, relatively competitive. But I also liked to have a lot of fun and was bored with life in Indiana and had a, um, a really good friend of my brother's come out. Uh, actually, he came home uh, on leave, as they call it, as we call it. You take some leave and, and uh, spend some time with your family. He had came, uh, came back to Indiana for a week or so, and he was a SEAL. And he told me all about what the SEAL life was like uh, and I was completely enthralled and listened and hung on every word and that's what really kind of drove my ambition to first of all join the Navy and second of all become uh, you know try to become part of that elite team which I knew very little about you, you look back in the 80s and, and there was the only information there were a few books and there were a couple magazines with very short stories about the SEAL team. There was mm-hmm. no internet, there was no texting or Facebook or Twitter. So there, there was very, very little information. And so, you know, with that information, I, I got kind of word of mouth, uh, homegrown stories. Uh, that's that's what um, drove me into the Navy. I joined two weeks out after I, right out of high school, went to Navy boot camp. And back then it was, the system was a little different. I ended up having to go to the fleet on a ship for two years, which was which is amazing. What an experience that was. Um, got to see the world almost a couple of times in a matter of two years, and it was a lot of fun. But, you know, the ultimate goal was to go to BUDS, go through SEAL training, and join the SEAL teams. And that's uh, that was that was what I did, along with a lot of other guys. And um, so that was that's my short story and how I came yeah. in. So there's a very specific path that SEALs take now in 2015. And you've had part of a hand in, in crafting how that works right now. What, what, was, what was it like back in 84, 86 when, when you joined up, when you kind of were just starting out, are, are the basics still there? What is it, what was it like when you joined up? And then let's, let's, let's talk about, you know, maybe how has it changed or what's been added over the years? Sure. So I'll, I'll uh, and, and this could be, this could turn into a really complex conversation, <laughs> but I'll try to keep the basics and we'll talk about what uh, what we call now a pipeline. And like many schools or training organizations, they have a pipeline and the things that support the pipeline or the instructors, the, the students, all these different things are part of and, and what you need to focus on to make a, and create a successful pipeline. Mm-hmm. Back in the 80s, the organization was much smaller. There weren't as many teams as there are today. There weren't as many active duty SEALs. We also have a new organization, relatively new, uh, SWIC, Special Warfare Combat Craftsmen, or the Special Boat Unit guys. We've always had Special Boat Unit guys all the way back in Vietnam, World War II, but they didn't have their own pipeline or their own warfare pen or, or, or yeah. Special Warfare um, designator. So that's a whole other topic, but back to the, to the, uh, the SEAL training. So in the 80s, it was it was, again, much smaller, which required a little bit of a shorter pipeline, and the pipeline the biggest difference in the pipeline back then and today is that the six months of BUDS is still there, but we have what I was a uh, part of leading organization to stand up a Naval Special Warfare Preparatory School, mm-hmm. which in short it's called BUDS Prep, and it's an eight-week preparation program at Great Lakes, which is the only Navy boot camp. So if we start from day one of this pipeline, let's say a young man today joins the Navy to become a SEAL, the pipeline today is he, he has to be tested beforehand. He has to find a civilian mentor. Okay. When he finds that mentor through a recruiting, through a Navy recruiting district or office, 
he meets with them, he's tested, he does some psychological testing, he does some physical testing, does some training, and if he passes all that, then he gets a contract, much like much like a, an NFL player going to the okay. team. So we have a contract process that tells him when he will be joining the training, when he'll, you know, the certain, certain contract specifications, pretty basic. But once he gets that contract, then he comes into the Navy. This is for enlisted or only enlisted pipeline. Uh, many of these young men coming in today have degrees, if not advanced degrees. The average, about 80% of our guys come in and have undergrads. So day one of that pipeline is joining the Navy, going through Navy boot camp, and learning about the Navy. So they're turning in that eight-week boot, uh, boot, uh, Navy boot camp program. The goal there is to turn a civilian into a sailor and teach them everything that they need to know at that point about the Navy. Gotcha. Very basic. Um, most of our young men that are joining to become a SEAL have absolutely no problem at all going through that Navy boot camp. After that eight-week Navy boot camp, they switch over. They and, and throughout that entire process, they're tested. They have to, you know, continually pass the requirements that they need to stay aligned with their current contract and yep. their pipeline. So they finish Navy boot camp, and they step across the street in Great Lakes in another program, the one we stood up into Bud's prep. That's another eight weeks. Again, they're tested almost weekly in that program. There is some, it's, it picks up a little bit in the, in the academic and mental training, okay. nothing, nothing crazy. But the, the goal of that course is to prepare the students for the rigors of BUDS. Now, most of these guys, you know, it, it's impossible to prepare anybody for BUDS without a certain mindset and yep. for us to give them that mindset Again, you have to have it when you show up. You know, we used to call our students tadpoles. There's a couple different names <laughs> for them. But, you know, we used to tell them there's there's plenty of young men out there that are already tadpoles. They're going to be seals. They just need to be refined. So they kind of show up as this this um, big um, rock, and we just start chipping away to shape that seal sculpture that's going to okay. take from their day that they enter Bud's Prep, which again is eight weeks long, and then they enter. Then they go to Coronado, California. They go through BUDS, which is six months long. BUDS is basic underwater demolition SEAL training. And this is the thing that when people think about the SEALs, that's kind of the hallmark of what I would say most civilians think or are, are familiar with at least. Absolutely. When they are watching uh, Discovery Channel and you see the Hell Week and you see the, the SEAL training, that's what, that's what the focus and the emphasis and, and the attraction is drawn on. <clears throat> So in that portion, that six months of buds is really where most of the attrition takes place. Mm -hmm. Most of the quitting, as we call it, or ringing out. Um, attrition also comes in different flavors, such as injuries or um, not passing the standard. Yep. So we, we, we really look at buds as, if we look at the SEAL training in general, from day one of buds to graduation of SQT, mm -hmm. we look at it as selection, training, qualification so so this first six months of buds is, is mostly selection a little bit of training and then the next six months after they complete buds you go through what's called seal qualification training mm -hmm. now this is where it differs greatly from back in the 80s when i went through training back in the 80s all the way up until early 2000 2001 is when we started sqt in coronado We've always had SEAL qualification training, that or SEAL tactical training. 
SEAL qualification training typically took place after you completed BUDS, your six month of BUDS in Coronado, which every SEAL candidate went through. From there, you would go to your prospective team. In my case, when I finished BUDS, I went to SEAL Team 4 okay. in Virginia Beach. And once they had a full platoon or a full group of guys ready to start another class called SEAL qualification training, they would do it on the East Coast or the West Coast collectively. Okay. So all the teams back then, um, if you were at SEAL Team 2 or SEAL Team 4, there was one SEAL qualification class per year. It was about six months long that you okay. went through. And sometimes there would be some attrition there as well. Mm-hmm. But SEAL qualification today, SEAL qualification training today, starts immediately after BUDS. It's another six months of more technical, tactical training. It teaches you, uh, you know, we get a little more in depth on SEAL, on uh, combat swimmer, for example. Yeah. Uh, more complicated diving, more complex engagement scenarios, more complex uh, close quarter combat training, mm-hmm. weapons training. We really get down in the details much more uh, beyond the basic. We, there's there's more up-to-date, current, relevant equipment, all the way from uh, night vision goggles to better weapons to using drones and, and, and conducting multiple layered multiple layers of surveillance integrated with communications, integrated with supporting assets, uh, uh, exercise-based scenarios so okay. we can go out and complete a full-on scenario. So so, so throughout this, this whole thing, uh, say you have 100 people, they decide they're going to be SEALs. How many actually make it down after you, you have all these different levels of attrition where people are either getting um, weeded out based on uh, capability based on training, based on injuries. If you have 100 people, how many make it all the way through training and actually become a SEAL? And that's always that's an interesting question. So we're talking about the, the success rates of an average cohort or class of, of uh, BUDS students, mm-hmm. for example. So we, it, it averages and it has been historically between 25 and 35% success okay. rate. And this may sound ridiculous, but clearly in the months of February or March, Hell Week is much, much colder than a Hell Week in June or July. Yep. And the numbers indicate the differences. So we'll <laughs> typically have a higher um, level of attrition in the winter months because yep. it's just colder. Do, do you have a, uh, as, a, as a SEAL or as, as someone uh, applying to be one, do you have any control over that? Or are you automatically assigned whether or not you're going to be in a winter or a summer class? No control. It, okay. it's, it's all timing. I mean, you, you might think you have it rigged, so you're going to go through summer <laughs> and week, but, but then you show up and you sprain your ankle and you get rolled back for you know, two months and then you, and you class up again for a winter hell week. Yeah. So, so there's, a, there's a very real element of like the physical discomfort and there's the actual physical training that goes into being a SEAL and then there's the weapons training, which is another piece. What I'm really interested in is sort of the, the mental training, both the, the, the training that you guys kind of, if you don't teach it, you kind of help them uncover it, um, but also the, the mindset that you know, that, that 25%, the 25 to 35% of SEALs that succeed or, or, or that actually complete the training, what, what separates them out from Joe Q off the street that thought he was going to be a SEAL and then signed up and, and had to tap out as, as soon as it got tough? You know, it's, again, a very, you know, it could be a very complicated, long-winded answer to a very <laughs> complicated, 
long-winded question. Um, it's, uh, you know, I can simplify it in, in a couple different ways. And one way I like to simplify it is that you have doers and you have sayers. Very simple. Um, and it's just like if you're if you're going, you know, football camp and you're going to go play play football, and, or if you're going to go, you know, run a run a triathlete or run a, a marathon. And and those who show up, they've got certain goals, and they. And there's those who show up and they talk about it, and then you know the result is what it is, whatever that result is. Uh, you know, buzz training, still training, and swift training actually is, you know, sort of similar. You, but what what I've seen over the years of the last three or four years of running training programs is, you have a lot of young men that are telling their families they're going to do this and that, and they're they're on Facebook and they're on Twitter and they're. They're talking a lot about what they're going to do. They're saying this and they're saying that. And, then the, and when it comes time to to go through Hell Week with your with your team, with your with your boat crew, they're they're not keeping up. They're not doing their part because they're so used to talking about it instead of doing it. Mm. You know, quitting. Well, that's just one act. That's just one small aspect. But really, the bottom line is, is most of the guys that show up who aren't going to quit have a very, um, I'd say. They have a pretty good work ethic. I mean, that's that's pretty simple. They, yeah. You know, they they they've already got some resilient skill sets internally. They're they're used to going through some level of being uncomfortable, okay. and some level of what we call putting out of, of working hard and and uh, you know working with a team and and taking the attention off yourself and helping your buddy out. All those things. If you take, you've probably heard this a million times. You take the focus off yourself and put it on the team. You share. The pain with the crew, with your boat crew, with your teammates—it's not nearly as hard. Yep. But there's a lot of young men that show up and they—they they have no concept of that, or they, no matter how much we tell them, or how much we try to teach them, or how much we talk about, you know, mental toughness and things such as you know visualization, mm-hmm. uh, teamwork, all these different things that kind of take your take your self out of it. That uh, they still end up quitting. Yeah, I think that's interesting that there's a, a team element. Uh, it's almost like part of it that's about unselfishness. It's not just about your pain. It's not just about how tough it is for you, but everyone around you is kind of going through the same thing. Right. And if you if you can buy into that team mentality and that other people are either depending on you or or need you there, that gives you a, another sort of well to to dig into where. If it was just about you and, and how comfortable you are, a lot of that individualized concept of like, this is all about you, uh, how do you feel right now, what is this, you know, how does this affect you, 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 everything's so individualized that sometimes like if you're a part of that group, if you're a part of a team, you can actually kind of hack your endurance levels a little bit because you could say, hey, there's other people going through this with me and even if I'm in pain, I'm in pain with other people. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that's... Again, we could talk talk in so so many aspects of this, so many variables of you know. You look at any any major sports team. This is this is their theme. This is what they want to hear at the beginning of the season. We actually go out and we'll talk to some of my my fellow instructors and guys I work with today. We'll go and and speak with um, pro NFL teams, pro major league baseball, and uh, you know, for example, you look at a major league baseball team and five or six of the players might be making ten million dollars that year, and and the rest of the team. The average player is bringing in a couple hundred grand. So mm-hmm. there's a huge variable or difference between what motivates them to play. So what made of you know, in the, in the teams and in buds, it's a much different game, obviously. But what motivates everybody to play? What motivates people to come to work? What motivates us to, you know, to, to bring the team together yeah. 
to suffer together and not only just to, you know, to go through the hard times together, but to enjoy it while you're doing it. And that's the big difference between what I've seen, again, over my you know, years in the teams and in the last three or four years running training organizations is, is the guys that come in te- the teams today, we've got all kinds of opportunities. These young men joining, they might have a four-year undergrad from Stanford or, or wherever, and they, they have opportunities. They could go out and do something else, but they want to they do something a little higher than, than what, you know, they want to do something with a higher purpose. They want to be part mm-hmm. of something exclusive. They want to be part of something unique, and they want to do it with their teammates, with their buddies, their best friends that they're going to meet while they're going through training. And when they show up to do that, you know, they, they, they bring a little bit of that with them of, of their experiences of working with teams and suffering together. And then our instructors obviously bring it into the game and, and they learn very quickly that, you know, they, we have little different little sayings. It pays to be a winner as a team, obviously. And sometimes there's a lot of individual events that, that, that a student must pass. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's a combination but it's interesting, over time, over a few weeks of watching the class, you will see those guys who may be suffering or may be having a hard time with an ind- individual events, the teams will pull them through. They will you know, work together and, and, and bring those guys who they find, this, who they think are team players through. And, and you'll start seeing the guys who aren't team players kind of falling off to the wayside. Interesting. So, so you've been on both sides of this. You've been on this as an instructor and as a uh, you know, as, as, as someone going through the training yourself, what got you through the training when you first went through it? And, and are there any specific moments that you kind of imprinted on your brain that you, you remember as like defining moment for you as either, okay, I could easily quit and go home and, and, and ring the bell, but I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep going. Yeah. That's so easy for me. There was no nothing really comfortable to go back to it was uh it was all or nothing it was either make it through the training or die and because i wanted it so badly hmm. and actually you know i mean coming from indiana and the winters and working on farm, <laughs> whatever crap work i was doing before i joined the navy and also knew what it was like in the regular navy on, on the on the on a ship working on a ship chipping paint i didn't really want to go back and do that when i started seal training i met some of my best friends i found the environment that I thrived in, the maritime environment, and it's just suffering and learning about weapons and, and all these things I've, I've always wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So I actually enjoyed it. Yeah, the training was tough, and there were certainly some times where I would call breaking points. One of them, um, pretty funny story, is my, my mother just showed up to visit me without any warning. Again, this was in the 80s. There was no internet, no texting. I didn't have a mobile phone. There, were, there weren't any around then. <laughs> And uh, they were on a vacation out here, and they decided to stop by and visit me. And the tour, my instructors let me go meet with my folks for a short period of time, but then I had to get back to training, and they tortured me relentlessly. <laughs> and uh, I'll never forget that, but uh, there was no quitting. And never one thought of quitting in my mind. And I think that's, uh, that echoes true with many of the students that make it through the training. You ask them, and you know, they never once thought about quitting. Yeah. You know, they suffered, and there were some times that were really, really hard, but it was... The, thought of quitting never crossed their mind it, it's almost like they decided that it what the end result was going to be before they even stepped out instead of just talking and talking and talking they kind of you mentioned visual visualizing it they 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 saw what they were going to do and they were everything else was just kind of in between until you got to that point right right and i'll say one thing and we don't talk about this much but you know there are elements of of seal training in both in buds and and sqt that the students going through it, there are, there are times of great uncertainty. At the same time, you're suffering greatly. 
Uh, for example, you're in Hell Week on a Wednesday or Thursday night, it's freezing, you're even wet and miserable, you're hungry, you think you're going to run to the chow hall and you end up doing another lap around the base, which is about another mile and a half with a boat on your head. And it's such a letdown because you thought you were going to go eat. Yeah. And little events like that throughout BUDS, and even in SEAL qualification training, you're almost to the point where you're going to graduate and finish the entire pipeline of SEAL training. But there's a surprise. There's some kind of, and I'm not going to get into the details of the training, but there are a couple things that happen that the students did not expect. And it, again, drives them to that brink of just severe and utter frustration. And that's when we, our instructor cadre, really can step back and take a look at the true man when you get someone down at that, that point of, of just utter breakdown, then you can really develop them. And, you know, again, this isn't high school football. This is a SEAL team. We're going to have to go forward and do some, some incredible, incredibly challenging operations. And so we need to test for that. Okay. I, I've done a couple of these events where you have ex-SEAL operatives or ex-Special uh, Forces operatives come out and they start their own private enterprise businesses or whatever. And so... Go Ruck is a, a big. I think Concura is is another one. Mm-hmm. Um, I've done I've done some things like that where they they basically, I mean it's not they, they recreate like a a baby sized version of Hell Week and I think Go Ruck you do like twelve hours and ruck around a city or whatever and then you keep doing these different things and right before you think you're done they have you go another three miles or something like that or they have you go jump in a river and do push ups. It's it's interesting to see how just the expectation of like even if you can see your endpoint and you think you're like hey like you said hey we're gonna go to the chow hole hey we're gonna be almost done and almost through this and then all of a sudden a like a surprise or a speed bump gets thrown in and that completely wrecks some people uh, people like that's almost more mentally challenging I, I I've seen you know in in those events then the rest of the challenge because you you get to this point where you think you've you think you finished and then you're you kind of set back again and i think a lot of people listening probably run into stuff like that in their day-to-day lives not on the same level that you know a a seal operative is dealing with but um it's one of those things where you almost think you accomplished your goal and then all of a sudden boom uh speed bump how do you react to that and and i think it's really interesting that's sort of like where that true character of an operative is sort of revealed. You can you can eliminate a lot of people when they're when you take them down kind of to the bone, and then you say, "What else do you have left?" And I think that's an interesting part that I didn't actually know was a part of that, but it's very very similar to the mindset that I've seen a lot of people who've come out of that program try to imprint in their own private enterprise mm-hmm. projects. Yeah, it's. I mean, how do you train for the unexpected? I mean, you do the, un- <laughs> the unexpected, and it's. Uh, you know, and, and it goes much deeper than that. I mean, that, again, that's just one vein of, of the many veins and, and channels of training and, and, and tests and standards and, um, and expectations we have, yeah. standards and expectations throughout the entire program. And, you know, if I, if I kind of dial down again on, a, on the hard work element of, you know, how do we know guys are, are, that show up and are ready and the majority of them that make it to the training have had to you know, have encountered some hard work, have encountered some something to kind of give them a, a, a bit of emotional uh, intelligence and emotional resilience that, um, that that maybe somebody else hasn't. And uh, you know, for example, I, I look back on my own experience, and even some of my best friends who were in training as Boy Scouts growing up. You know, we had to, you know, you had to learn how to adapt and, and innovate, and, and 
you know, you'd go camping and maybe it would rain and you maybe you forgot something and you know, it's not like you're you're if you're out back then or even now if you're out camping or out in the backwoods, you know, you can't um, you know, you can't just walk across the street to a seven eleven or, or what, <laughs> what have you. So you kinda of learn to deal over time. You know, I was very fortunate to grow up in that environment. I remember in the Boy Scouts we had this thing called Firecrafter. And Firecrafter is a is a is uh, similar to a merit badge, but you would you would kind of go through the Boy Scouts and to earn fire, Firecrafter, you had to learn how to build your own fire through the bow method, and it was extremely difficult. And uh, I remember when I went to try to do mine, it rained that night, so I you know it, it took a little bit longer than expected. <laughs> so little elements like that, as as you know, or today's youth is is growing up. You know, hopefully, they're still getting to experience those things and. And as we look at, uh, you know, as it carries it, that hard work and that resilience factor, no matter what different or how differently we were all raised, you know, I think we still have students showing up with that element of resilience and hard work. And, and so they, they, they can kind of swim through that unexpected drill pretty, yeah. you know, fairly easily more so than others. I thought it was interesting that you said, you know, with your own training, it was either complete the training or die. Um, that seems probably a little extreme to most people, but I'm trying to think of the last time. I, I think there's there's something in that where it's like, okay, what are you willing to give up? What are you willing to put on the line for this? And a lot of times I think most people, let's say the broad majority uh, of people in the U.S. don't have to do something. There's a lot of things that like we'd like to do or would be nice to have or would be, you know, people, people dream about doing one day somewhere down the road. But... There, there's very few things people are put in the position where do this or or like or you know I would you I want to either do this or or die um, and I, I I I hear from a lot of people who say you know I really want to do this I, I'm so committed to doing it and then you have a hiccup or you have a bump in the road and and they quit um, and I, I I don't know if there's a question I have uh, specifically on that but I, it just really curious to me that you almost get like another level of strength when when you're put at those odds because all of a sudden it's like okay well I'm in pain but I'm not dead so I guess I'm going to keep going that was one of the things uh when when I spoke with Kyle Maynard one of his mantras that he was using was I think he might have gotten this from a, a seal was not dead can't quit and just kept going when he was climbing up Mount Kilimanjaro and it's like one of those things where okay I'm in pain but pain is just the it's just a sensation. It's just a feeling. It's not the it's not the end all be all. And I'm not dead, so I'm gonna keep going. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny. I mean, we, you hear all these sayings, and and when I went through training, it was you didn't hear them that much, but it was things like you know, pain is a cornerstone of growth. Uh, pain that does not kill me only makes me stronger, mm-hmm. etc. etc. Now these are like you know, they're on Tumblr pretty, and yeah, Pinterest, pretty and, standard yeah, yeah, yeah. sayings that throw out there, but. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it's it's all you know, a little bit a bit of ridiculous, you know. And even, but I look at SEAL training. You know, it's it's hard, it's difficult, and but there are so many other things out there too. I look at some of these young entrepreneurs or some of these, um, you know, young humanitarian uh, workers who, you know, they 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 could they could be doing all kinds of different things, but they decide, you know, for a couple of years in their life, they're going to go to another country and and uh, help out some people who are less fortunate. And I you know I think that's highly respectable, and they're and they're putting aside their their own needs and wants and joining a team for higher higher good and uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's good to see so 
So let's shift a little bit into more of uh, the teaching aspect and the, the leadership aspect of your career. You want to talk about sort of your shift out from operations and focusing more on the BUDS prep that you started teaching and you sort of helped create that and then your time on Coronado uh, as well. Sure. So we'll talk about uh, BUDS prep or Naval Special Warfare Preparatory School. And I'll talk briefly about why we established that program. And I say we is that the, the uh, Naval Special Warfare in general wanted to look at a better pipeline and a better way to successfully get the right kind of candidate into the pipeline and do it more efficiently, more cost effectively. And there are quite a few other points to this. And one, the, the big thing was medical issues too, is, is we wanted to do it smartly. We wanted to, to bring in the right people and the right team and the right curriculum and develop these young candidates, these young men, kind of start them at a certain level of physical training from day one of the eight-week prep course and build them up to a certain point at week eight. Were you, were you running into a lot of issues with like people going through buds and getting hurt? And was that like one of the main impetus for it as far as like getting them up to a certain standard level of fitness so then they could focus on actually completing the training and, and making it more of a overall test of the person rather than a okay, he got, you know, he messed up his ankle, he's out, he's jacked up his arms or whatever. Like, Yeah, yeah, so let me, let me just, there's, so if we look at the reasons why we implemented BUDS Prep, three main reasons. One of them, reduce medical injuries. Number two was increase efficiencies in getting a student from boot camp to Coronado. And number three was cost effectiveness. Now, the number two and number three, efficiency and effectiveness, when we look at cost and time, resources was very important. Before we had prep, there was a whole other way every BUDS and every SEAL and SWIC student had to go to get to BUDS. They would go to boot camp and then they would go to some other regular Navy training school like welding, for example, or electrician or some other corpsman, some other regular Navy training program that they would really never use in their career as a SEAL. Mm -hmm. And it would be anywhere from 10 weeks to six months of training. So the Navy would kind of lose that investment that they put into that particular student unless the student went to BUDS and quit and then they would go to that perspective, what we would call rating, and work in the Navy for four to six years in that rating. So it would be a, a gain for them. But typically it would be a complete loss, at least in, a, in the sense of time and resources. Okay. Now, to turn to the other element, the medical aspect, we had... Again, there was no real formal pipeline from day one, the day that the individual joined the Navy to go through Navy boot camp. Very little focused training. It was just getting through Navy boot camp. And then they would go to their prospective rating and do whatever training they could on their own. And then they would show up at BUDS, and I would describe it as getting hit in the head with a two before. <laughs> because there was no real... Now, some students, even though I say that, the day, you know, when I went through training and all those before Bud's Prep, the guys who made it, they somehow figured it out. They trained right, but there were a, there were just some distinctive drops in the rates of injuries after we started Prep gotcha. compared to before. Gotcha. I mean, we're talking 30 to 40% rate of injury. Okay. So you're able to withstand that two by four to the head a little bit better after the Prep School. Exactly. I mean, simple things just like focusing on better core strength, hip flexibility, quad strength, neck flexibility, and then just trying to teach them proper ways to run, Okay. Uh, proper swim technique. All the things that, you know, coming from a cadre of 
active duty SEALs. The cadre was also comprised of strength and conditioning specialists, mm-hmm. swim coaches. We had a bronze medal, Olympic bronze medal swimmer who's also a swim coach on the uh, on the staff to help teach proper swim technique. And, okay. you know, so we really kind of would help get get through the basics. And again, we, we talk about how training was. Before prep, we would also just have a lot of students just waiting to class up in Coronado. And, and really with no particular training program or, you know, running around, you know, pulling weeds or p- picking up trash. And it was a huge waste of time. Yeah. So. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so so from that creating uh, Bud's Prep, you moved into a higher leadership role here out in Coronado. And I think my favorite story is our mutual friend Josh said he came out after your retirement and they closed down the island for you. And they basically said they had this whole big event for you. And then you came up and you spoke and you said, well, I, I don't know how much I can talk about the last few years or something like that. I don't know how much I can say. But tell me a little bit about your position there was, I screwed this up earlier, but I'm going to get it right this time. It was Command Master Chief right. um, on Coronado Island. So you were in charge of the SEAL and the SWIC teams out here in Coronado. Is that correct? Yeah. So here in Coronado. And, and so Command Master Chief is basically, you know. Something you, out of Halo. Right. Well, exactly. But every command yeah. in the Navy and every, frankly, every command in the military, and when we're talking about a command, we're talking about. Uh, small and large organizations yep. that make up the larger organization itself. So a command could be anywhere between 100 and 200 people to five or 600. So the command I was the command master chief for was was basic training command, essentially yep. BUDS and SWIC training. So that was the school, the, the training schoolhouse uh, to become a SEAL once you came to Coronado or to become a uh, special boat unit guy, so yep. a, a combat craftsman. And being the command master chief, Essentially, you're the you're the senior enlisted advisor to the commanding officer. So we call it a triad. A triad runs each command: as the commanding officer, the executive officer, and the command master chief. Typically, the CO, the commanding officer, and the CMC, the command master chief, are the two most experienced and have the most time and are the most, um, I'd say, credible appointed by a higher command to lead that command. Gotcha. So my duties and responsibilities there as a command master chief was to advise the commanding officer on everything from the, uh, the day-to-day activities to representing the enlisted staff and, and quite oftentimes the students. But the focus there is a much different training command. It's, um, the focus there is to always, A, you want to always guard and make sure BUDS remains, the SEAL training remains what it has been, what it was. And yes, we evolve and we, we innovate and we learn to do things better, but there's still a lot of things. You're kind of the, you're kind of the keeper of the kingdom or the keys or whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it to make sure that, uh, that that nobody goes in there and messes around and tries to change things because everybody, every SEAL out there will feel a rumbling underneath their feet if someone tries to make training easier. Gotcha. Or if they try to make some swinging change that could potentially affect how we operate and how effective we are in today's uh, SEAL community. One of, one of the things that I think is interesting um, about the seals in general and you mentioned this you alluded this earlier and then you know there's just a standard there's there's the standard and you have to hit the standard i I think that's really interesting and uh i don't i don't want to make too many like social commentary on where you know how people react in the world today but i i typically i my my problem is a lot of times i see people when they see challenges the their response to challenges and i think this is a society thing almost more so than anything else is uh when people see challenges almost the the default reaction is to okay that challenge is too hard it's too difficult let's make it easier let's dilute it somehow let's make it more accessible to more people let's let's change what that challenge means and what i'm really interested in is 
in finding those challenges and not only like going after them, but also embracing them because they're hard and because they're difficult and having it be a standard and then trying trying to to find it within yourself to meet that standard. And I think there's, you know, again, I don't want to make too many commentaries on whatever. What, what I like about the seals is there, there is that standard. You almost like hold it sacred of, you said you're, you're the keeper of the training and that you need to keep it a, a certain way and keep it uh, to a certain level of difficulty in order to not only protect the, the legacy of what it is, but also protect the, the candidates that you're bringing in for training and, and making, making sure that they're, they're brought to a level of a, cert, a certain level of operative going yeah. forward. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. So I, just, I can add two things to that. And these things both come out of our SEAL ethos. And one of them is uh, loyalty to team and teammates. Mm-hmm. And the other is earning your trident every day. I will earn my trident every day. Obviously, the Trident is a SEAL insignia you earn after you finish SEAL training, and you have to earn it every day in the teams. You could screw up one day in the teams or over time and get that Trident taken away. And it's not about what people are seeing. It's about, you know, integrity. It's about how you're living your life on a day-to-day basis. Loyalty to team and teammates. You know, we talked about being the keeper of the standard and the expectations of of Buds as a command master chief. You know, I never once was... uh, Never made a made a decision without seeking the advisement of other master chiefs, either within the command. And mm-hmm. I had six, seven other master chiefs working with me, running that organization. And I had a couple above me in higher uh, levels of positions, and even guys who had retired, you know, years years ago, who who put me through training, who I could always reach out to. So is that up and down loyalty to the teams and your teammates? You know, and the, the, the way that goes is, is obviously, you know, who are we loyal to? We're loyal to our organization. We're loyal to the teams, I say. You know, I'm loyal to the nation, loyal mm-hmm. to the Navy, loyal to the Naval Special Warfare community. So it's kind of a tiered level. And, and we're never just loyal to ourselves. Or, yeah, you can be loyal to your teammate, but not to the, um, not to, the detriment of the team. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to protect a teammate. Uh, if he's got, you know, excessively drinking or getting, you know, out two, or, you know, a couple DUIs, and at some point, I've got to protect the organization too. Yep. I've got to come and, I've got to approach my teammates and say, hey, you know, I mean, maybe you should look at your some of these issues you have here. You know, you're not only affecting you and your family, but you're affecting me and my teammates. You know, if you're not if you're not fully prepared all the time, then we're taking a risk. Yeah. So that's, you know, that goes everywhere in and out of your personal life and into the operational life. I don't know if that makes sense. No, that it's, it's really compelling to the fact that uh, you're not only holding yourself to a a certain standard and and there's something about like excelling in life in general that people sometimes makes them uncomfortable because if they they feel like they're not holding themselves to a standard if if they see someone there's a story about like the uh what is it like the the cage electric monkeys or something like that and basically the story goes a bunch of monkeys were in a cage uh and the the top of the cage was electrified and so people would the the monkeys would climb up try to grab the cage uh, and get shocked and be down and so over time, all the monkeys learned to not reach for the ceiling. And as as the researchers were doing this, they, they pulled one monkey out and, and, and left, put a new one in. And over time, the new monkey would try to climb out and all the other ones would pull him down because they'd say, oh, you don't get shocked. And they kept doing this until there were all new monkeys that had never actually been shocked in the cage. And they they kept pulling down each other because they, they were scared of getting... They didn't. They didn't know why. But they just knew they were supposed to yeah. not do that. And yeah. 
there's something about when when you when you hold yourself to a higher standard. Sometimes people won't like it, but if you're around other people that are also holding themselves to that same standard, you're not only doing it for yourself, but you're doing it for the rest of your team. And you said, you know, you're you're loyal to the teams, you're loyal to things that are bigger than you. And I think that's one of the real big things that I'm getting out of this this talk that we're having is, yeah, there 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 are certain things that you can do as an individual to become a little bit more resilient. But one of the bigger things is if you're part of something that's more important than just yourself, you can kind of tap into that shared well of resilience and 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 that bond with your teammates your your friends and and the people that you've really kind of built this bond through months and months of of training and and operations where you can you can really kind of tap into that you can utilize that where if you're really just going out to kind of hey look at me this is how cool i am this is what i can do you can burn out on that pretty quick yeah yeah a lot of good points (laughs) Cool, cool. So, so what are you up to these days? What uh, what are you working on right now? And and what what are the next big steps for you? Yeah, so that's a great question. I'm, now I'm working with the Honor Foundation. It's uh, kind of a um, not so much a transitional assistance program, but it's a it's a really unique program set up to help veterans, basically primarily uh, soft naval special warfare veterans, either MARSOC, Marine Special Operations Command, or or uh, SOCOM. Special Operations Command operators transition out. Um, it's a training program based at uh, University of San Diego. Okay. Or, I'm sorry, um, out of the Rady School of Management uh, facility there at UCSD. And um, that we're also uh, expanding that op- that program out to the East Coast, where we will be starting the first East Coast program here, I think, in the fall. Okay. So that's uh, that's kind of my part time. Um, still connected to the community. Uh, working with Joe Musselman on that. The other thing is um, on on the board of a few startups and, and just trying to, you know, apply a, a little bit of teamwork concepts, initiatives, leadership, uh, process improvement, everything, you know, from my past experiences uh, in the teams and, and uh, helping grow the business and yeah. learning, learning about business concepts. My last few years, I went back to school, back to an uh, executive MBA program at uh, USD, University of San Diego, and okay. uh, so that helped kind of tweak my, uh, my business uh, Acumen. Acumen, you're right. So I, <laughs> I am, you know, exploring that world a little bit. And, okay. Uh, physically, you know, I just kind of exploring the the, the, the waterman sports. Uh, you know, I. It's funny you come out here and you you, you, hear, you see a lot of guys surfing. You know, I've been surfing for you know I don't know since a teenager since I tried on the East Coast and not uh, not a you know not a huge great surfer back then. But uh, for me, it's really about being a waterman. I grew up in Indiana, canoeing the rivers and skiing on the lakes and it's no different out here you got a big ocean and plenty of sports to to take out there you know surf paddle surf surfing stand-up paddle boarding uh swimming and then um and triathlon still doing some of that and a lot of cycling yeah we'll have to get uh in a race together or something out uh this summer yeah so cool cool well thanks so much for for jumping on the podcast i really appreciate your insight and, and seeing how you know really that that team aspect of of the training is a, is a really big mental component of how you I can keep going, I can build that endurance. And uh, thanks for being on the show, and uh, hopefully we'll do this again. Absolutely. Thanks, Joel. Have a good one.